0: The following podcast contains explicit
1: language. It's Monday, July 27th, 2015. From Slate, It's the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump leads, well, my show, and every poll. Not Iowa, Scott Walker's a little ahead, but still. Now, some of the polls were taken before the McCain comments, doesn't really matter. Do you know why Trump is leading in all the polls? Here are the ideas that are put forth. Because he speaks to anger. Because he's stealing the rightful media exposure due other candidates. At this point, it's only about name recognition. I'm not going to say those ideas are wrong, but I have a better idea. Two better ideas. Here's my idea. I believe that something like 20% of likely Republican voters really, really like what Donald Trump is saying. And there's a couple of points I want to make about what he's saying. One is when you don't care about serving a constituency other than yourself and other than your message— Communication gains; it gains clarity. So much of political communication, we use phrases like "dog whistles" or "nods to this group," or we say a subtle distancing from that group. Think about your own life. Have you ever subtly distanced yourself with a statement? It's weird. The most regular people' subtle distancing is they literally get up and walk away, right? But in politics, it's all these. I mean, it's like parsing an epistolary exchange from the nineteenth century. There's what you say. There's what you mean. There's all the shades of meaning trump no shades you could argue no meaning but trump is pure pure id pure idiocy whatever it's a good communication strategy it's like when when an artist is free of the constraints of his labels or the best case when a journalist transitions to columnist and it becomes this freeing thing it can be amazing cuz you say what you really think but another bit of trump's appeal i think is noted in something that I think is true of human nature. It might only be true of American human nature, but I think it's true of all of us. We tend to think that everyone else's job is really easy and everyone else tends to think that our job is a lot easier than it is, right? You know, you've been there. You met someone for the first time. Oh, what do you do? I'm a dermatologist. Ah, teens with zits. And of course you're going to get, actually, you know, the number one thing that I do is skin cancer and there's certain really challenging diagnoses and plus you have to navigate Medicare and Medicaid and then there's the hospital rounds, right? It's always much, even the simplest thing, what you think is the simplest thing. Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm an auctioneer. Ah, you talk fast and you sell shit. No, 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 no. Much more difficult than that. There's subtle cueing. You have to play the bitters off each other. You have to have an expertise in the products. So this always happens your own job is pretty hard. Everyone else's job is pretty easy. And Trump is gaining a lot of ground and people find it very appealing when he just dismisses the jobs that other politicians do is that ah, pretty easy being president. How, how hard is that? Right? So Scott Walker, he's screwing up the roads in Wisconsin. I could do a better job than that. And Rick Perry he ain't protecting the borders. I could do better than that. And M- McCain with veterans. How hard is it to help the veterans? I could do better than that. It's easy. But in truth, we all know that these jobs ain't easy. You know, in fact, you'll see a lot of people dismissing the thing that Trump is doing as easy. Oh, all he wants to do is gain attention for himself. Well, doesn't everyone in the media? He's just really good at it. Not saying he'd be a good president. In fact, I'm saying he'd be a terrible president. But this thing where you think everyone's job is easy it ain't easy. On the show today, I spiel about the Bard of Hicksville. But first, a Republican candidate offers a prescription for other people doing their job that would make solving this whole economy thing seem kind of, well, easy. The prescription is work longer hours. And here's Adam Davidson with his very productive take. In speaking with the Manchester, New Hampshire newspaper, the union leader, Jeb Bush said this, quote, we have to be a lot more productive. Workforce participation has to rise from its all-time modern lows. It means that people need to work longer hours and through their productivity gain more income for their families. Thank you said Hillary Clinton, Paul Krugman, Jeb Bush bashers, and the ghost of the 2012 Mitt Romney campaign. Thank you for sounding like a monster because people in America are working very, very hard. So is that critique of what Bush was saying, is that fair? Don't ask me, ask Adam Davidson. Actually, I'll ask Adam Davidson. Adam is a writer for the New York Times Magazine on economics issues. He's the founding editor of Planet Money. We're going to get downright productive right here. Hey, Adam. Hey, Mike. So productivity, there's the general phrase, like being productive, but it's a mathematical formula. It's output divided by hours worked. Dollar value output. Dollar value output. If he was actually saying productivity has to rise, it means that people need to work longer hours and through their productivity gain more income for their families. I actually don't think that that's a clean math equation, Definitionally, if productivity rises, they will be gaining more income for their families, even if they work the same hours.
2: Yeah, no, no, that, it's definitely he's not using the technical definition of productivity. To be generous, yeah. So, uh, and and this is actually it turns out to be a deep puzzle in economics, and it's yes. one we don't fully understand. So, let's say you're making four thousand dollars a week, and you work forty hours, and so that means you're making a hundred dollars an hour, and then. You become more productive, and Slate recognizes this fact, and they give you a 10% raise. Do you then work 10% fewer hours and say, Hey, 4,000 bucks a week, that's all I needed. So I'm just going to, as economists would say, I'm going to consume my 10% increase in leisure hours and uh-huh. spend more time with Milo and Emmett? Or do you work those additional hours and make more money? And actually, what many economists believe, although not all, is that you actually end up working more hours, that if you're making more money the opportunity cost of not working increases. And so you work more hours. So you're
1: incentivized to do it. It's also hilarious why people who...
2: There is a certain class of person
1: who maybe works on Wall Street and says, I work really hard. Why can't the poor? You're making so much more money per hour than they are. If they were incentivized to the tune that you are, maybe they'd work more too.
0: Yeah,
2: it's actually a striking fact. And we know this from studies of of very poor countries that when you make a dollar a day, you actually work less. You might think, oh, that person would hustle more because... If they get an extra dime, their their salary increases by 10 percent. But the opportunity cost of not working is so low that it's often, you know, better just not to work. So, I I mean, I think if I were to give the most – I don't want to give a generous reading. I think what Jeb Bush said was just it, – it just was a – it was either economically nonsense or – I don't know. I, well, it did come – I will say it did come on – The heels of the sentence that my aspirations
1: and I believe we can achieve it is for 4% growth as far as the eye can see. That is nonsense,
2: I think. That is nonsense. And say. he kind of painted himself into a corner because yeah. economists started saying, well, what, what are you talking about? But I do want to be generous. He did say we need to be a lot more productive. Workplace
1: participation has to rise from its all-time modern lows. And to me, this is about the plague of the part-time worker who would like more work. Like, I don't think it's too much of a leap. You look at his whole record. He's not one of these, you people are lazy guys. He's one of these, get out and work. I want to give you jobs that you want kind of guys. So, I do think workforce participation, maybe he's using the word r- wrong, but part time work transitioning to full time work is a good thing. And that's, I think, what maybe part of what he was endorsing.
2: We're going through a historic shift to less workforce participation, fewer hours worked by the average person, fewer people working. That's for a few reasons. So one reason is there's a major demographic shift. We just have older people than we used to. And so that you would expect that uh, workforce participation would fall with that. And aside from immigration, like bringing in a lot of younger people, there's not a lot we can do about that, although I would like us to bring in a lot of immigrants and younger people. But then the downside of that is what's sometimes called discouraged workers, people who don't even look for work anymore. Yeah. And that clearly is a frustrating thing. We want we want people who want to find work to be able to get the work. What I would say, though, is if you want to look at a primary thing, if we could like tweak the U.S. economy magically, the disconnect between productivity growth and wage growth would be... And and it's a deep mystery why it's broken so dramatically. But as a general rule for the kind of post-World War II boom, 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, when the economy was more productive, when a factory was more productive, workers got a fairly tight wage raise. And according to classic economic theory, the gains of productivity growth should always go to workers. Workers should see their wages grow in lockstep with productivity increases. So if computers and conveyor belts or whatever are making the average worker more productive, their wages should go up to reflect that. That And what we mean more productive, we don't mean anything like working harder.
1: It could be pushing the same button he's pushing for 40 hours, but that button's resulting in more
2: things that are produced. Because there's a more efficient machine that works better, that has less downtime. Yeah, Yeah, exactly and that doesn't happen. We, we have, have become remarkably more productive,
1: but the wages are just But not the there. wages
2: are not yeah. being widely shared. So th- so that is the thing and we don't know if it's cause or effect, but that's the thing that is broken that if we could fix. So if if I was running for president and I said something like nobody's seriously talking about 4% growth. That's just not realistic for the United States over a very long period of time. But if we said I want to get back to a place where the growth in wealth created by rises in productivity is broadly shared with the owners of capital, the rich people, as well as the workers, and that will create the conditions where more people may choose voluntarily to work longer hours because they'll make more money, and companies will therefore compete more for employees and w- and there will be more jobs. I think that starts to make sense. That was kind of a terrible political speech, though. I don't, th- <laughs> I don't think that... I. I- I think we can work on that. Do you think workforce
1: participation does have to rise from its all-time modern lows?
2: Yes. I don't know that it will rise to its all-time modern highs. I, right. I, I think you know there's a permanent downward pressure. But yeah, I mean, unemployment alone is high. Workforce participation is different from unemployment. So according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the one that released, the government organization, the Department of Labor that releases these statistics, you're in the workforce If you can answer yes to the question, either do you have a job or have you actively looked for a job in the last 12 months? And if your answer is no, I haven't, you're not in the workforce. But we know that, so some of those people are people who retired or people who decided, you know what, I want to spend time with my kids. I want to, you know, I don't want to be in the workforce. My husband or my wife makes enough money, I don't have to. So these are people who are A, So discouraged, they're not even looking for work. But even worse, and this is actually maybe more damaging, don't even believe that they can acquire the skills to get jobs. If people weren't working, but felt like, you know what, I'm going to go back to junior college, if I could just upgrade my skills a little, then I can work. And those numbers are dropping too. And that's upsetting. I mean, that's an economy that is not functioning at peak potential.
1: Do you find it plausible that he really was talking about getting part-time workers who want full-time work to full-time work? Or do you think he was saying that Americans aren't working hard enough, full stop?
2: I, I think he was talking about poor people are getting much of their income from transfer payments, from government programs. and, and Maybe the 47% yeah, argument. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think, I think, an, an echo of the 47%. So therefore,
1: do you think it's fair to criticize him for saying Americans are working pretty hard or all these people have two jobs? I mean, that's the political hit against
2: them. Economics... Is not about maximizing money or maximizing some number like GDP. GDP, economics double the double the population will double the GDP. Yeah, Who economics is about capitalism. The selling point of capitalism. The reason I am a capitalist is that when people can voluntarily enter or exit financial relationships, jobs, buy an apple, whatever they want, at a free-floating price, that you can have so- socially beneficial outcomes. One of the things I love about that is each person, when this is functioning, and I'm not saying, you know, capitalism always works great or, Mm -hmm. you know, but when it's functioning, each person can choose for themselves what are the things they want, what are the things they value. One of the things that we're constantly balancing, all of us, is how much leisure time, which is a broad umbrella that includes playing video games and watching porn, but also spending valuable time with your kids or reading books or doing hobbies— or travel, how much leisure time we want, and how much time we want to spend working. I think we want the best possible economy I can imagine is one that offers ample choice for lots of opportunities for the most people. And I certainly don't work as hard as I could because I really like spending time with my wife and kid. I would love everybody to make that choice. So I don't think you can use economics to then say people should work harder. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's a... You
1: should use economics to say people should have the opportunity to work as hard as they want to work. Yes. And have a good life.
2: Yes. And should share in the productivity growth that their labor brings. Jeb Bush just not being a good capitalist. Actually, I would say that's true. Jeb Bush is not being a good capitalist. In this instance. In this instance.
1: Adam Davidson writes about economics matters for the New York Times Magazine, and he founded Planet Money, NPR's Planet Money. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Mike. All right. So right now, as I speak to you, we're in the middle of, uh, well, the the time period between Tisha B'Av and Tuba'v. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. The ninth of Av would be Tisha Bav and two Bavs, you know, the Jewish Valentine's Day. You don't know what I'm talking about? Listen to this.
0: Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people.
1: Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down.
0: You can listen to Unorthodox each week on itunes.com/slash panoply or at tabletmag.com.
1: And now the spiel. You may be a right turn lane. I may be crazy. State legislators in Albany, New York, want to name a stretch of Long Island Highway for favorite son, Billy Joel. Route 107 from Lennox Avenue in Hicksville, that's where Billy Joel is from, to the Northern State Parkway, Northern State, also the name of a fine musical group, look him up. There are a couple problems. For one, Billy Joel is, for the political process that we're talking about at least, very inconveniently alive. Roads named by the state are supposed to be for great statesmen or great pianomen of the past. Let's say we had something named after Bill Cosby, said Assemblyman Phil Steck, a Schenectady Democrat. What are we going to do? Rename it now? I think it might be best to wait after the book is closed. Yeah, because once someone gets their name or image on something official, it's never controversial after that, right? I will bet you a $20 bill if you disagree with me. But there is another slight problem with naming the stretch. But there is another slight problem with naming a stretch of road, highway, or byway after Mr. Billy Joel. Billy Joel is a terrible, terrible driver. He lost a bone in his thumb In fact, he severely damaged both thumbs in a 1982 motorcycle accident. He was involved in three one-car crashes, which means he drove into trees and houses and things, between the years 2002 and 2004. He later got help for drinking, though he said he was mostly depressed after 9-11. So maybe if you wanted to name a Billy Joel Marina or a Billy Joel Heliport or some other mode of transport that he doesn't have a perilous history with, it would be less fraught. Okay, but putting all that aside, here's what I've done. I went to the stretch of road that they want to rename for Billy Joel. I've been there before. I know it well. It ain't much of a road. Strip malls, ATMs, Old Navy, Panera Bread. You know what? That... That sounds almost musical. But I'm not just gonna list every business on Route 107. I'm gonna list them in song. Citibank, multiplex, now showing train wreck, Ted 2, paper towns, pixels in 3D, bakery and shish kebab, good health day spa, hot stone body scrub, 40% off, Boston market, Starbucks, Sonoco gas, or rent a tux, Boulder station, steakhouse, Sears to fix your brakes, Smoke stacks, sell cigars, cobble house, shish kebab. I just found out a secret to this Billy Joel song. The first two lines ought to rhyme, then it doesn't matter much. Just maintain some patter and the rhyme scheme is off. Boston Market, Ikea, Dollar Tree, Red Lobster, Billy Joel, not yet dead, but also not so great. Look, that wasn't really fair. I mean, everyone knows We Didn't Start the Fire is not at the the peak of the Billy Joel oeuvre. You know what song is? Well, it's Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. Or, in our rendition, Scenes from Billy Joel Boulevard. Andrea, Scenes from Billy Joel Boulevard.
0: Scenes from Billy Joel Boulevard. Scenes
1: from Billy Joel Boulevard. Boulevard. Here we go. A shish kebab joint. A Dollar Tree store. Perhaps the late showing of Jurassic Park, part four, a Citibank branch, an entire Dollar Tree, don't like dinosaurs, how about pixels in 3D? Yeah, was that awful? That was awful. But if you think that that is an insult to the legacy of Billy Joel, just think about what naming Route 107 between Lennox Avenue and Northern State will do to the guy. He's the piano man. Let him go. Let him, let him pass before we insult him by naming this horrible stretch of highway in his honor. And that's it for today's show. Well, Andrea Salenzi is a friend of mine. She edits my gaffes for free. She works with Joel Meyer, who didn't start the fire, but has put out a fire or three. Joel says, Mike, your singing is killing me, as he wads cotton balls in his ears. And the executive producer finds my singing no smoother, I've confirmed Andy Bauer's worst fears. La-da-da-da-da-da-da. La-da-da-da-da-da-da-dum-bum-bum-bum bum 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 do not sing us a song, you're a podcast host Your voice is like drowning a cat We're going to give you bad iTunes reviews There's nothing you can do about that But there is something I could do if you like good music, because today is Monday, and every Monday we play a They Might Be Giants song. It is in honor of the resurrection of Dial-A-Song, which you can call at 844-387-6962. Their new song will be up on Tuesday, or just listen, because in three seconds we're going to play it, Walking My Cat Named Dog.